0: God, I'm grateful for your kindness to us. And even as we celebrate here this July 4th, our independence, we're reminded of all the sacrifices that were made to gain our independence from tyranny, uh, from England. But God, that is only a small comparison and and a huge reminder to us, the tyranny that we were under with the bondage of sin and the slavery that we had under sin. But because of your great kindness and your love for us and your great provision of your son Jesus to to us, we now can live free lives from sin and its bondage. We're grateful for that. So grateful. I pray for us this morning, God, as we look at your word again as you call us to put away and put to death sin in our life, I pray that that would be so true for us this morning. That even now, God, before we uh, really study and dive into your word, I pray that we would take just a small moment to pause and ask you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten us where we have fallen short, to see where if any place in our life that we must put to death and put away certain things in our life that hold us back from being holy the way you've called us to be holy. So now God, lead us, guide us, and let us be at a place of true repentance that would bring us life and life to the full. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We are here again in the middle of the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. Uh, We've been saying this, and I'll say it again and again throughout this study. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And Paul had this desire to take the gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus, to lost people. And he wanted lost people to come to know Christ in an intimate way, the same way that Paul did on the road to Damascus. That if you know the Apostle Paul, he was saw and he hated Christians so much so on the road to Damascus he was on the way to kill Christians and God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his kindness allowed Jesus to show up on that road and showing up on that road he said to the apostle uh, Paul why do you persecute me why are you bringing all this harm to me and then in a moment he lifted the scales from his eyes and Paul saw Christ in the full glory and he fell down and worshipped God. And then his mission, his lifelong mission from then on out was to herald the name of Jesus wherever he went. And so that's what this book is about, that Paul is writing this, this small congregation of new believers in this small city that, that was wiped out. But what, what Paul is saying to this church, what I believe Paul is saying to us this morning is this. And the theme of this book, it's Christ plus nothing equals your salvation, that there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that I can do that can attain our salvation or hold our salvation. But now you're going to see in this part of the letter, though, that Paul is always, in all of Paul's writing, he gives this strong doctrine or this strong theology of who God is. But in all of Paul's writings, you'll see this strong push for theology, but then he backs it up with, now that you believe this to be true about God, your life must be different. And this is how your life must be different. And so that's where we are here in this book, in this letter. In chapter 3 is the turning point of the letter. We saw last week that, that Paul is saying, it's not going to be of your power and your strength that comes any form of sanctification or any form of salvation or any form of you becoming holy. It'll be because of the power of Christ that has raised you from the dead it's now the holy spirit that lives in you that gives you the power and so if you leave this morning thinking i've got to muster the power to get rid of my sin in my life then you've missed the book you've missed the letter you've missed what paul's saying you'll miss the text but paul is going to tell us this morning that we must put to death certain sins in our life but it's through the holy spirit that does that if you do not have the holy spirit you cannot live a victorious Christian life because it is only through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. This has been one of those messages that's preparing for it. It it, it brought me back to my own journey with the Lord. My own journey over over the last 20 years of my life of looking and, and pleading with God about asking God to put certain sins to death in my life. My prayer is that that would be true for you this morning. I've been reading this book. I told everyone on Wednesday night this. It's a three hundred and sixty-five day devotional, and this the man. His name is Martin Lloyd Jones. He's a he's a a dead preacher from England. He he was an amazing writer. His first job was he was a doctor, so he's got a doctor mind, and then the Lord convicted him and brought him to salvation. And then compelled him to go preach God's word. Uh, he's probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, many people believe. He, he's an amazing man. But he says this about revival. The first place, if we want revival, where it has to start in us, and it has to start with repentance. So if we're asking God, I know we here at Powell Chapel have been asking God for revival, Well, we now have to say, is there anything in our lives, both individually and collectively, that we must repent of? Because if there is no repentance, there can be no revival. And so this morning, I'll tell you already where we're going to head. The end of this message is going to be a call to confession and repentance so that we can see revival happen in our lives and in our church and therefore our community. Our community needs the gospel. But the gospel will not start because I proclaim it from this pulpit. The gospel will begin in you as you leave this place and you herald the gospel to your neighbors. But if you do not have true repentance, you do not have true confession, then my great fear for us as the church is we do not have the power of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit to proclaim with great boldness to a lost world what we must proclaim. And sin always does that. It is the same would be true for us. We we can have the greatest AC unit. But if we do not have a clean filter, that AC unit is going to work awfully hard and we're not going to get the results we want. So the same is true in us. The Holy Spirit, if you are a believer this morning, the Holy Spirit resides in you. But if you do not have a clean filter or a life that is, full of confession and repentance to remove the things to allow the power of the Spirit to go through you, then you, you are an AC unit that's working extra hard that gets no results. And so this morning for us, going into it, even now, is there any place in your life, is there any place in my life, is there any places in the life of this church that we must go to God through repentance? And that's what Paul is going to say. Here in these few verses, we're going to look at a few things. We'll look at the mortification of sin or the putting to death of sin in your life and in my life. Then we will look at the reason we put those things to death. And then finally, we'll look at the promise that comes of that. So I'll teach a little bit out of order in the text just because of the way Paul writes. So Paul is going to write these, these, these two places in this uh, passage that talks about the sin that we must put to death. That's in verses 5 and 8 and 9. So I'm going to cover those few verses first. Then I'm going to go to verse 7, and then I'll end. uh, I'll go to verse 6, then I'll end with verse 7 this morning. So we'll be a little bit out of order if you're following along in your Bibles, but that's just because of the way Paul wrote and the way I want to cover it this morning. So let's look first at what we'll label the mortification of sin, or the putting to death of sin, or as he says later on in the passage, the putting off of sin. So there's got to be this mortification. There's got to be this place in us that we put sin to death. Now that's an extreme way of saying it. It's what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. Remember what Jesus says. If your right hand causes you to stumble, what are we to do? If your eye causes you to, to stumble, are, you are to what? Cut it off. Paul is using this extreme language because he understands that if there's sin in your life, if there's sin in my life, then, then we cannot be most productive for Christ the same way that Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. So he says he calls to us put these things to death. He gives two groups of sin that are to be put to death. Five in the first, six in the second. But you can take these two categories. I know when we read the passage, it doesn't seem like two categories. It seems like there's a bunch of random things. But Paul is going to write about two things. The two things are, and this is where it gets PG-13. The first is this. And all the first things In verse 5, they all have to do with one word, sex. So Paul comes out of the gates where all the places that Paul could start talking about first. He doesn't start with anything else, but he starts with sex. He's saying to us, we must put our sexual immorality to death. I'll tell you in a moment the reason I believe Paul uses this, language. So there's sexual immorality that we must put to death. And there's speech that we must put to death. That's the second category. So sex and speech, Paul says, we must put to death. We must rid ourselves. We must go to whatever lengths to rid ourselves of these things. He says, what is earthly in you. So put to death whatever's earthly in you. That reminds us of what he just said in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 3, I believe, where he says, there's worldly things in you. Abstain from the world and put your focus on heavenly things. What Paul now says is if you have a perspective of earthly sexual desires, you cannot think of the things of the Lord. It's impossible. He says, and if you have worldly speech, you cannot hear and speak the things of God. They cannot coexist. Sexual immorality and unhealthy speech cannot coexist with a holy, godly life. And so Paul says, put these things to death. And so he gives those first five. I'm going to walk through the five things. The first one that he says that we must put to death is sexual immorality. It is the Greek word pornea. Pornea is where we get the American word or the English word pornography. Pornography means this. Any sight visual or sound of anything sexually immoral. So anything that you can think of or hear or see that is sexually immoral, Paul is saying to us, put those things to death. He, he comes right out of the gate. And I'll tell you in a moment why I believe that Paul starts with sexual immorality first. But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, hey, what, what you can hear, what you can see, and what you can think about put to death. Now, sexual immorality covers a multitude of things. He could have just stopped at that one word. So why does Paul go on to say impurity? He could have just stopped. One word captured all five. It's progressive in nature. These five sins are going to build on top of each other all the way to the last one. You'll think to yourself, how does greed have anything to do with sexual immorality? Because that's where he ends the first section. The second one is this impurity. This word means it goes beyond just the act of sexual immorality. So he's saying all the sexual immoral things now go to the impurity. And what Paul says is, where does your sexual immorality start? heart it's what jesus tells us in matthew chapter 5 28 remember what jesus says jesus is going and he's speaking and preaching the greatest sermon to ever preach he talks about this word lust and what the pharisees and the sadducees and the zealots had done is taken this word lust and just said hey it's about the action if you just abstain from the action you'll be okay And no, Jesus says, no, no, if you even think it where in your, not your mind, but your heart, you've already committed adultery. So Paul says, hey, it's not just about purely the action. But now we're going to get deeper into the heart of the problem. There's a lot of people that can say, I've never done X, Y, and Z. Praise God for that. But can we truthfully say, it's never done in my heart? Jesus addresses that and says, oh, no, no, it's impossible. So Paul says, now you got to put that place to death. Wherever the desire for that to come out of you, you must put to death. Then he says, passions and evil desires. That's a combination of a few words in the Greek. It simply means, now it's when we take the action and the thought And move it in and move towards. We're aggressive about it. We're aggressive in nature about finding those places. And then Paul ends with this one little word. He says covetedness. The word in the Greek means greed. Simply greed is this. Greed says this. I want what I want when I want it, and it's mine to have. So when I covet something or I'm greedy for something, I'm saying, I want that at all costs. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. And Paul is going to make a beeline all the way back to sexual immorality. That's what happens when we go to places of sexual immorality. What we're in essence saying is, hey, I've got a better idea than God has for me. You see what, what Paul is going to begin to say here, and what it's true for us today, when we live sexually moral lives, we will stand apart from the world. But here's what's crept into the church that our lives sexually look no different than the world's, both in behavior and in thought life and thought process. How do I know that? I'll give a few illustrations. If any of us, 50 years ago, would have said that the church would ordain homosexuals to preach from the pulpit, we would have said, oh, by no means. Right? No one would have thought, oh, you would have called me a lunatic. If people would have then said, Hey, on top of that, now it's okay. Now we'll, not only will we have someone preach from the pulpit, we'll allow there to be marriages at the pulpit from what God clearly says in scriptures is immoral. Now I told my friends this about two years ago, and it, it's coming to fruition, which is beyond terrifying. And I, I believe this will be true about what happens next in our sexual revolution in America. Because it just won, this movie just came out, and it just won a bunch of of awards. Now, now the movie is this. It's an older man that falls in love with a younger man. And I don't mean age-wise. I mean this older college professor falls in love with a high school student. And now they have this relationship and now we're showing it on a movie, and now this movie is making all kinds of awards. Well, you know what we call that here in America? That's called pedophilia. And so now all of a sudden, we're now saying pedophilia is okay if it's winning all these awards. Now that ought to terrify us, but it goes back to what Paul is saying to us That is from greed. I want what I want when I want it, and I'll get whatever I'll get, however I want, because God does not have what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And Paul is pleading with us, let us put that to death. How come? Why is Paul so adamant about putting sexual immorality to death? Because it comes from a place of greed in which says that I don't really need or trust God. God's ways are not what's best for me. My ways are. Paul says it this way. It's the only sin that sexual sin is the only sin that is against the body or against ourselves. He says that in Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sin against his own body. And so Paul is saying, hey, I'm going to start with sexual sin because it starts with you. It starts with you and me, the church. And if we're harming ourselves, then what happens when we harm ourselves? We always harm other people. And so Paul knows if we harm ourselves, we will. It's a domino effect. We will harm other people because we'll go after. I want what I want, what I want at any cost. But you're harming yourself first. People say this about pornography. I'm not harming anyone else. Ask the spouses of people who have been caught looking at porn, how harmful it is to the spouse. That is one of the things in my job I deal with most days, is the devastation when a man looks at porn and the the effects it has on their wife, and vice versa. Porn is no longer just a man thing. It's also now a female thing. I don't know if you knew that or not. Here's what it says. Here's what the porn industry says. They they said it this blatantly. We've got the man, so now we're going to go after the woman. And you know who's next? Your children. And here's how I know that. The first exposure to most children with any pornographic image, take a wild guess. Seven. They're coming after us. And I will say this to men and women and moms and dad. We must protect our house from sexual immorality. It starts with what you just watch on the TV. Like when you and I, we just turn on the TV at night. There's so, like I read it this week. What, your grand, what my grandparents, your parents, your grandparents saw in a week's worth of time We can see in one-hour episode. And it's so subtle. And yet it's infiltrating the minds of our children. Which means it's affecting our minds as adults. So we must flee sexual immorality because it will destroy the church quicker than anything else. You can see story after story after story after story of how Satan has used sexual immorality in the church to destroy the church. And Paul got that 2,000 years ago. Do we get it today? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this. So we must put these five things to death. Then he says this in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. What Paul is saying, what the Greek word, the Greek language for that is, the same way that you disregard dirty clothes, you must disregard this life. So he says, put these things to death, and now these dirty clothes, get rid of them. And this isn't like dirty clothes that you can put in the wash and put some bleach on. Like when you get dirty clothes, sometimes you got to just throw the dirty clothes out. am I the only one. And so Paul is saying, not only you put them to death, but now you got to get rid of these things. What what does he tell us to get rid of? We must put all of them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Those all have to do with what? Speech. And so what Paul says is, first I want to talk about what harms you, and now I want to talk about what harms others. You remember the old nursery, uh, I, I, it's not a hymn, a rhyme, sticks and stones may, but what, what? that's the biggest lie that Satan ever used. Words are more hurtful and harmful than anything else. And so what Paul is saying is, let's protect what comes out of our mouth. Because what Jesus says about that is what? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Paul and Jesus are going to continue to point us back. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's not just an action issue. It's where does it come from? And Paul starts right out the gate. You want to know where your lies come from? They start with your heart. They start with what he says. Put away anger. Anger is the place of the heart. Remember what Jesus said. If you've even thought about murdering someone, you've already murdered them. So anger is a place of deep resentment. It's that plotting. Am I the only one? I mean, just drive on 24. You will find anger. I mean, just drive on this road right here. This is getting worse. I just can find, it's that that place of like, you just feel it internally. It's that boiling point like the seething. That's what Paul's saying. It's like, hey, it starts here because where it's going to lead you to is way worse. So he's saying deal with your anger. That place of deep resentment. So he says, put that away because if you, again, these are progressive. He says if you put that away, the rest won't happen. Because what comes next? It's the wrath. The wrath is this. Wrath is the action that comes from anger. Wrath Takes me to what my anger wants to do. It's the action behind the anger. It's the place of revenge. So now I move into action. Now I go into plotting to action. And now I go into what he says is malice. It's both the anger and the wrath. They take root and they give me action to do what I'm going to do. Paul's saying, if you deal with your anger, You won't go to wrath, which means you won't go to malice. Like malice is, um, I would put it this way, uh, is sarcasm. Anyone in here sarcastic? Do you know what the word sarcasm means in the Greek? It's from the word sarquismo. What the word means in the Greek is the tearing or ripping of flesh. That's why I hate sarcasm. Because if I'm honest, when I'm sarcastic, it's like I kind of want to, like, poke them just enough that they don't know I'm poking at them. But, like, it's like I got them and everyone laughs so they don't really know I got them. Am I the only one? I mean, I'm the master at sarcasm. It's, it's one of the places in my life that God continues to convict me of. And, and because it's like it's like I'm shaking you with my right hand and punching you in your liver with the left hand. And you don't even know it because everyone's laughing. You're like, ah, man, that must be funny. I better laugh too. But that's what Paul is saying when it comes to malice. And then he says this. Then you get a point with anger and wrath and malice that even the, the sarcasm isn't working anymore. So you just go straight for the jugular. It's called slander. Like you're like, I, okay, I'm done with all these games. Like these playing games, now I'm just going to go right after you. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about you wherever I want to to other people. Anyone guilty of that? Like God forbid you say it to the person, so you're just going to say it to everyone else so everyone else starts teaming up with you about how bad that person is. I mean, I guess I'm the only one guilty in the room. Well, Paul says if you deal with your anger, you deal with your wrath, you deal with how malice you are, you deal with your slander. You'll never get to the last part. Obscene talk—that's not cursing. It's not like dropping bad words. I, I would, never mind. Uh, stick to your notes, Todd. But what Paul is saying, this is this. It moves now to what we would call verbal abuse. We direct all of our anger, all of our wrath, all of our malice, all of our slander right to the person. So then now they know exactly where you stand with them. And we unleash a tyranny of words to them that are so harmful. But where does it start? If you've ever been verbally abused in your life before, the way I have, it started with an angry, angry person that didn't know what to do with their anger. And Paul is saying to us, if we deal with our anger, we won't... Come to a place of harming other people. And so Paul is saying in these two places, we must put these two things to death those that harm ourselves and those that harm other people. How amazing would it be if we had a church full of people that did not harm themselves and would not harm other people? You know what would be called? be called the safest place in the world. Because you can leave this building and you are going to be bombarded with both of those things. Sexual immorality everywhere you turn. And people dog-cussing you wherever you go. That's what the world has to offer. But how sad has it become that both of those two things have made their way into what was supposed to be the holiest of places. And I don't mean a building. Ladies and gentlemen. I mean the family of God. That is the church. And now Paul goes on to say. Here's the reason we put these things to death. And it is terrifying. And is what we want to offer the world. And it's not promising. What he says in verse 6 is this. You take these 11 things. It's on these 11 things. On the account of these things, what is coming? The wrath of God. Paul says to us, the wrath of God is coming to those who practice these things here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying if you've done these things and you've come to a place of repentance, that the wrath of God is still coming for you. He's also not saying if you uh, momentarily have relapses in these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is saying we're still secure in our salvation. We see that in the first half of the book. But what Paul is now saying to us, and we must look and examine our own lives, are these characteristics of us? Is this your character? Is this who you are? Are you sexually immoral, impure? You have passions and evil desires and greed and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you have anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk? And do you lie to one another? Is that what is that you to your core? Is that who you are? Because if that is who you are, I would say this to you. Then there's no way you are a believer in Christ Jesus. They cannot coexist. And God says, because they cannot coexist, the wrath of God will come upon you. And we want to talk about the love of God all day. But God cannot be any more loving than he can be wrathful. It's his character. They are both his character. God cannot be in the midst of sin. And it's God's wrath that wipes sin out of the picture. And so if this is your characteristic, if you're like here this morning and you're like, man, those check out in my life, I would plead with you. Have you really surrendered your life to Christ? And then I'd plead with you this. Do you believe this is the reason the wrath of God is coming upon the world? Because Paul says it. Jesus says it. God himself says it. And If we believe the wrath of God is coming upon people that are sexual immoral, impure, passion, evil desires, covetousness, uh, slander, anger, wrath, malice, obscene talk, and lie to each other, do we not want to go out to the world and tell them, hey, repent of those things because the wrath of God is coming? Like this passage, if you're a believer, ought to push you into evangelism. Because you don't want the wrath of God falling on people. And here's what we know that's so good about God. God said that himself, I am slow to bring my wrath because I love people. I want the salvation For all people. Thank God he's slow in his wrath. But there will be a day. That the slowness of God in his wrath. It's going to come. Like a watch in the night. And it will be too late. So this passage. Ought to move us. To bring the gospel. To our neighbors. And not out of condemnation. But out of what? great compassion and pity for them. Because we, just like God, don't want to see anyone perish. Amen? The wrath of God will come upon those. So that's the reason that we rid ourselves of these things and we call other people to rid themselves of these things. But here's the great promise of the passage. And I'll end in that. He says in verse 7, this is the promise. In these you two once walked, when you were living in them. The promise is this. There's two words in that passage once and were. Those are past tense words, those are not present tense words. Paul says the great promise for us being reminded of the gospel of what I've just taught you. Over the last first two chapters is Christ has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. That's called salvation. He took and absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for you, for me, because of these 11 things. And now you once walked that way. You once were living that way. But now because of the Holy Spirit that you received at your salvation, you no longer have to work, walk that way. Because now the power of Christ lives in you and gives you the power to do the things that Paul just said. To put to death and get rid of these things. You and I cannot do them unless we were saved. That's the great promise of this passage this morning. Do you believe that to be true in your own life? Have you experienced salvation in this way? The Holy Spirit, we said it last week, we'll say it this week, gives you and gives me the power to flee all sin. If I do not have the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be like a bug to a light, and I'm going to go to it every time. And it will kill me. Paul and Christ say, because the Holy Spirit now resides in you, you no longer have to be like that fly going to a lamp. You can go in the other direction that is something way more attractive than the light. It's called the light of God, the Son Himself. But as I said at the beginning, I'll say it now. I want us to examine ourselves and come to a place of confession and repentance. As James says it this way. I know when we come to this passage in James, we we think that James is talking about the physically sick. That's not what James is talking about at all because we see the flow of the passage. This is in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? That's not a physical suffering. That is a suffering what Paul is talking about back, here in Colossians. Anyone cheerful. Let I'm singing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them. The elders pray over him or her. Anointing him or her. With oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is spiritually sick. The prayer of faith saves the spiritually sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, what? He will be forgiven. Therefore, if we believe that to be true, Paul says, if we believe that Christ will forgive us of our sins, what does James say to do next? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Catch that in the passage. James does not say just simply confess it to Jesus. James says we must be a family that confesses our sins to one another. Why? We are to what? What? We are to confess our sins to one another and what? Pray for one another. How often has our confession turned into gossip about one another? James does not say, hey, go confess your sins and then go gossip about each other. No, James says, hey, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that what? You may be healed. If you're... Like math, which I can't stand, this is the equation. This is the math equation. Confession plus prayer in this passage equals what? Healing. I just wonder how many of us in this body don't live healed lives because we don't live in a place of confessing to one another and we don't live as a church that continues to pray for one another. Therefore, we haven't seen true healing, which that's why we have not seen true revival. You see, revival starts with confession. And then James ends it with this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you are a believer this morning, you are a righteous person. I am not more righteous because I get to preach every Sunday. I'm a normal man just like you. The only difference is I've been called by God, to stand this pulpit to proclaim his word. Now, if God called me to be a doctor, I would go be a doctor. I'd be just as righteous doing that if I were to do this. It's out of my obedience what I'm called to do. You, If you are a believer, listen again. You are a righteous person, not because of anything righteous you've done, but because of the righteousness of Christ that's been poured out onto you because of the finished work of the cross. So my plea to us this morning is this. Would we examine our lives? Would we this morning put to death, put away the things in our life that is hindering us to living and experiencing a revival that Christ wants to pour out onto us and when we start this morning with a place of confessing it to one another, and will we pray for one another, and then when we rejoice when we see the healing of one another, that is what happened in my life 13 years ago. I lived in a place of darkness with a, a dark, dark sin. And because is in the room, I won't share more. I got to this place of utter brokenness. And I confessed it out loud to another human being. That man prayed over me. I stand at this pulpit, not because of anything I've done, but because of a prayer of a righteous man. And I received healing from an addiction that was in my life as a young boy. And I am a witness and a testimony that God continues to want to bring healing to all of his children. But we we live as men and women and as a church that confesses, and prays, and receives healing. Let us pray to the Lord this morning. God, we are desperate for revival. And it's so clear throughout your word, revival starts with repentance and confession. And I pray for any of us this morning, God, that need to come before you and before others to confess, repent, that we would not leave this place without doing that. And we would this morning experience your healing. God, may we, through your power, put to death sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another. That is not a comprehensive list, God. If there's anything in our lives that hinders us to live holy lives, let us begin to live lives of confession, repentance for you and with one another. So as James says, we would pray for one another. We would be healed. Bring healing to us. Bring healing to this body. Bring revival to us and bring revival our community pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus Amen. if you're here this morning and you need a place of confession and repentance I'll be up front the deacons will be here talk to whoever brought you we would love to pray over you that you may receive healing if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ Jesus and you want to live a life of purity and wholeness Oneness with him, yourselves, and other people. That, that comes from the cross. We would ask that you would surrender your will and your life over to the care of God. We'd love to walk with you, and share with you what that means. If you don't know Christ, one, this morning, find me, find one of the deacons. Find whoever brought you to ask about the greatest gift that you could ever receive. May this truly be a day of independence for you and your sin. This morning. Let's go to him in worship this morning. What you
1: guys stand? So i mm-hmm. i